0: Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. I'm speaking with Christopher Bendixson. Welcome, Christopher. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So could you give us a brief introduction as to the projects you're involved in at the moment, Uh, please, Christopher? And what I'll do is cycle back and and work out how you got to today. So just a very brief um, overview of, of what you spend your time doing today.
1: Sure. Uh, so I am the Bitcoin research lead at uh, a company called CoinShares. Uh, we are the largest digital asset manager in Europe. Uh, we have about six or seven billion, depending on the price, uh, under management. Uh, we we are we we offer a wide range of uh, digital investment products. We offer exchange traded funds. We offer um, um, Individual trading strategies. Um, we can do brokerage. Uh, we can do lending. You know, we we're, we're pretty. We're, we're becoming quite a diversified shop. Um, we also have uh, blockchain equity index products. Um, we have a venture portfolio. You know. We're, we're we're getting there in terms of uh, product diversity and and what we're uh, able to offer to our clients. Um, so we we're mainly focused on the European market. Um, you know our our direct sort of competitors on the U.S. side would be Grayscale. Um, you know we we have some competitors here in Europe too, but they're all uh, they're all significantly smaller than us. So. That's basically uh, the company and within the company uh, I so for for about five years or so I uh, was the head of research, so I I led the the entire research operation. Uh, I've recently taken a bit of a step back Uh, we're we're, we're doing a lot of altcoin stuff um, these days, and I'm not really interested in that, uh, nor do I really want to put my name behind anything that has to do with any of that so i've kind of taken a step back and uh and sort of been able to build my own little bitcoin research desk where it's just two of us right now but we're uh, you know in my own humble view we're, we're a quality shop um so we focus on we focus on everything bitcoin uh, we do a lot of fundamentals research we do valuation research We've done quite a lot on the mining network. Uh, we've mapped out the the location of it, the power draw. We've done a bunch of ESG stuff uh, related to Bitcoin mining, and uh, you know, we 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 also have a bit of a focus on the on the human rights angle of things. Um, this is also part of the sort of ESG push. Uh, we 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 find that the uh, the narrative that's being put out there with regards to Bitcoin industry is just severely lacking it's very, very asymmetrical and one sided and, uh, and it only takes into account, like the very small amount of whatever negative you can find uh, and forgets about all the positives so basically a. A, a very targeted kind of Bitcoin research operation. Um, with uh, with some, some interesting, some interesting, uh, kind of niches that we've, you know, come to delve deeper into than others just because, uh, it's hard to explain why it became like that, but, but that's, that's basically it run a, run a Bitcoin research desk, um, Awesome. I'm an asset manager doing it for a while.
0: <laughs> if, if, um, if you don't know a question I have in regards to Bitcoin, then no one will. I think it's probably my summary of, uh, of that introduction
1: in a sense, like
0: uh, as the head of research in this space for a period of time, like you mentioned, like there's not many people that would have had that exposure.
1: Yeah, no, that that's probably true, but, uh, you know, you, you got to keep in mind that the rabbit hole is endless and, uh, there is no bottom and <laughs> there's always more to learn. And even, I mean, you can even make an argument that Satoshi probably didn't fully grasp or understand everything about Bitcoin because there's so much to it that we're still, it's like, we've been dropped this like alien technology in our laps and we're we're just a bunch of monkeys like trying to figure out what this even is. And so I can assure you that there are questions you can put to me that I can't answer, (laughs) Um, but, you know, it's never happened in client meetings. So that's good. (laughs) I I think that probably says more about the, uh, you know, the, where, where the client, you know, where our clients are in their journey towards understanding than it's maybe, maybe. so. Awesome. And I I look forward to digging into all of these areas.
0: if we could, can we rewind? So, so this is where your, you know, your time and energy is focused today, but that wasn't always the case. So, um, what was life like growing up for you? Were you always interested in technology? Was, um, you know, central banking and the monetary system part of life as a teenager? Um, like, wh- how did you get to this point? And, you know, did you do a finance degree or something? Um, just talking right. a little bit about about the journey.
1: Yeah. Um... Yeah, I've always been interested in uh, technology, and uh, you know, I've I've been a I've been a sort of STEM student for for my entire academic career or or whatever. So what does STEM mean, Christopher? Uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Oh. It's just a it's just like an acronym. Yeah, yeah. Um, and no, I I I don't know that I really thought about central banking at all. Until like university, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in in a you know very kind of remote part of the world. Um, I grew up up uh, up in the Arctic Circle in in northern Norway. Wow. Uh, so you know it it's not the most connected places in the world. Um, it's really nice it's really, really nice. Uh, And I appreciate it more and more every time I go back. Um, But yeah, none of these things, I mean, I've always had an interest in economics in general, I just didn't really fully understand what that meant. Uh, You know, we had our even in high school, we had our like cursory introduction to economics, and a lot of it just never made sense to me. And uh, we had a teacher who was just very upfront about that. And I, I think that's probably like one one part of the journey towards like the the orange pill. I guess I was red pilled before I was orange pilled, but um, you know, part of the part of the journey was just you know, I I, re- I remember this very key moment where uh, our. Our teacher and economics wasn't even a separate subject. It was part of like, what do they call it? I, I don't even remember what they called it, but it, it was some like societal science or whatever. And he just made the point that, you know, GDP is such like an interesting and weird um, measure because going by GDP, you could argue that natural disasters and war and everything is good for the economy, right? uh if if all you're looking for is growth of gdp you should just burn down all the cities every day and rebuild them because then magically gdp goes up right um and i was I, you know it it kind of stuck with me in the back of my head i was like okay so there's clearly we clearly have issues in like the way that we think about this but that i, I didn't really think much further about that until later um Then, you know, next, next big thing on my like red pill journey was, uh, when I was in the military and, you know, I was, I was kind of like, uh, it's kind of like a sports guy at that time. You know, I, I was very serious about playing soccer and, you know, I was pretty decent. Um, got into the military. was like a bit of a goody two shoes, at least for uh, for the start of it, was always trying to like uh, do my best. Sorry, it, it's my. Sorry, can we pause for a second? Um, I'm not sure that my sound is coming properly through.
0: So Michael, and, just talking about um, playing soccer at uh, well, playing soccer and entering the military and how you felt at the time.
1: Yeah. So when 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 I entered the military, I was a bit of like a goody two shoes, and you know, always wanted to like perform well and, you know, do as you're told and, you know, follow orders. And there was this whole, I guess, this like underlying idea in my head that, you know, I was performing like a service and there was like a level of implicit gratitude from, you know, the other end, whatever that was. You know an abstract idea that somehow like the superiors or, or whatnot like had my back and yeah you know would kind of like reciprocate if you will like all all the things that we did as like the, the grunt guys and then I had an experience where uh you know we were going to this like major exercise and I uh fell down with probably like the flu um, and it, it happened immediately as we were like driving down in a convoy for like 800 kilometers or something like very very slowly and I just had to sit there and suffer like nobody even gave enough of a shit to like manage to pass me some like painkillers and I was like at the end of it I was just literally like flat down in like the back of like a shitty old like military vehicle and then ended up being hospitalized like once we actually like made it two days later to where we were going and I just remember feeling completely like oh my god like nobody cares like no one gives a shit like you're just some number Uh, they don't care if you live or die like all the things that you think you're doing is just bullshit like the state does not give a fuck about you right yeah and you know that started like changing something I think internally where I just became a a lot more cynical with regards to the relationship between the individual and the state Um, not something that I could like articulate very well at the time but you know you get that feeling where are just like okay well actually I'm on my own um the state doesn't care they're just you know you're just some like cash cow for them here I am having worked for free for like an entire year of my life you know fulfilling their goals whatever those are and in return like you know they almost killed me <laughs> without like not even caring so or at least it felt like that i don't i don't know that i was ever like it's your personal
0: experience that's the point i mean it's not it's not meant to be a certain way it's just your expectations versus your perceptions and then your reality were that's what resulted right you came out of that and you were thinking about the relationship between the state and the individual which perhaps wouldn't (laughs) happen to have that experience not been the case
1: exactly exactly and it is definitely the most that i've ever like suffered in terms of pain and just feeling of hopelessness so so that was uh that was probably like a, a, a key moment uh towards getting red pilled um so after that i uh i did a, a year of university i studied uh, psychology and, and chemistry and physics in um in norway um and then decided that I wanted to move to the US. Um, so you know I, I did all the things and uh, got you know my SATs and my whatever they're all called, those like weird tests that they do to like determine whether or not you can, I guess like read and do math. Uh, I got into a, a school in Florida and and moved down there uh, to, uh, to study chemistry. Um, and, uh, Christopher, if, if I may, if
0: I could jump in then. So, um, I've never spoken to someone from the Arctic circle before. I'd love yeah. to learn a bit more about like what was life like growing up there? And <clears throat> I guess what was normal until perhaps when, I guess when you went to university it was probably in, in Oslo or something, but, you know, then moving to the States or something in Florida, I mean, wow, you've gone from the Arctic circle to the Caribbean pretty much big change so just yeah just explain to me a bit what that was like i mean how did you feel about the whole process
1: uh the whole process well i mean so it's uh you know where i grew up uh doesn't have like a proper university Mm -hmm. so it's completely expected that you know once you finish high school you move i mean Also, you know, if if you're a guy, there's a high chance you're getting uh, called into the military. anyway. Well, now, actually, it's both. You know, if there's a decent chance you get called in, if you're just healthy and, you know, not mentally inept in any way. uh, Well, basically, the military can call in whoever they want to Mm -hmm. fill their numbers. So... So it's, it's, and that's, you know, you're not going to get stationed in your hometown, probably. It's rare. So it's, it's, uh, it's expected that you go somewhere to like get your education. Uh, I mean, in terms of like growing up there, I don't, it's like, I don't know what it's like to grow up anywhere else. So uh, I don't have anything to compare it to. Uh, I, I, it's just, just felt, I guess, like normal, like small town life
0: um i'm just intrigued on like silly things like you know the summer's two months long or something and the winter's like 10 months and like so i mean during the middle of winter how much sunlight do you get per day i mean uh um, right. obviously it's, it's normal i mean i grew up in the uk and we get you know in, in the winter it would be still dark at like 8 8 30 in the morning and then by three four o'clock in the afternoon it's dark again and i was completely used to that my wife's australian i'm now based in oz I lived in, Asia yeah. in Singapore for some time and they don't have any time clock change. And yeah. suddenly realized that, like, wow, it would be so different. And I remember sitting in class and it's dark outside at three, four o'clock in the afternoon. You're like
1: back in a classroom, like it's pitch black outside of what's going on, but it's normal. Yeah. So you don't really think any differently. Um, right, I, exactly. And, and so, you know, the, the way that the sort of seasons proceed up there is just, again, that, that I, you know, for, for a while I thought that's what it was like everywhere um you know until you're like you know seven or eight or whatnot and you mm. learn that oh no actually like it's totally different other places they just have like a day and a night that's the same length mm. every day of the year and I was like huh fascinating um but yeah no up uh up where I'm from it's um yeah it's a, it's a pretty short summer uh to the degree that you can even say that it's like summer i mean if if you get like 10 days where you can wear shorts like in the summer it's like pretty normal wow. uh, it, ha- it happens that the temperature goes into the 80s but you know it's not every year right mm. um so and then in oh, terms of beautiful.
0: like absolutely beautiful
1: it is it is amazing like you know for anyone who hasn't seen the northern lights you know you're missing out it's really well wow. yeah it's a, it's a amazing thing to see um and again like it was just there all the time i thought you know everybody knows what that looks like yeah but, yeah i bet you know, nobody does like nobody's ever seen <laughs> it but yeah i'm imagining your house
0: is like one of those kind of cool ice hotels that you see with like the northern lights in the background <laughs> right a <laughs>
1: like, like, bunch, bunch of reindeer grazing uh, everyone's area. like that there. yeah yeah i mean How we cool. do have we we do have moose in our garden from time to time. So. Awesome. But, and, and okay, um, so so you're in
0: a town that was fairly remote. I mean, could be anywhere in the world, frankly. But the expectation is actually you're going to leave. So you, you you grow up, you get educated, and you head off for further education, and suddenly you find yourself in Florida. Was that a big culture change? Um, and and how was life there? You were just about to start explaining that to me before I rewound a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a it's big culture shock in in a lot of ways. I mean, no, not in like every way, because like American culture is so kind of well disseminated through popular culture that, you know, you kind of have a lot of expectations of what it's going to be like. And it wasn't, it wasn't very, it, it was actually remarkably close to what I expected. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, you find yourself in this, like, completely different way of, thinking and approaching everything uh and you know that was that was weird and, and interesting but i had a i had an amazing time there like florida was was perfect you know i i get very weather sick so if you know if it's cold and like depressing and rainy and you know you, you the type of weather where you don't want to be outside like i kind of become a bit of like an eeyore um and if it's like really sunny and nice and and awesome like i want to be outside and if i can't be outside i get angry
0: <laughs> uh.
1: Um. so what i what i realized when i studied in norway and i, I didn't study in Oslo, i studied in a town called trondheim which is um, a very very old city it's over a thousand years old. Um, And uh, it's like kind of the middle of the country. So, you know, you get like proper winter, uh, but you you get like a little bit more of of a summer, but not a proper summer. But what I realized was like as soon as exam time hits, that's like right when summer is happening. Mm -hmm. And if I have to sit inside and study during all those nice days, and then exams are done, and then I have to go do my summer job, which is gonna be inside somewhere. I'm just gonna like hate my life. Mm. So I decided I needed to get somewhere warm where every day is nice, and if you can't be outside today, that's fine. You can be outside tomorrow because tomorrow's gonna be nice, guaranteed. Mm. Um, you don't even have to think about it. You get up in the morning, you know you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt and flip flops right you don't have to layer up and like like shovel your car out of like a giant pile of snow and like <laughs> heat it up for five oh. minutes while you eat your breakfast so that it's bearable oh, oh. to sit in it when you're like driving to you know wherever it is that you're going yeah it must be tough it's just not you know it's it's the little things that like make your life more annoying than you wanted to. Mm. Um,
0: but then it's also so, perspective, isn't it? When you get to a new place, you you realize that other people do live differently to how you were born into life, per se. And it's yeah, kind of like the sure. way of life you were introduced to initially is wrong, bad, or whatever. The point is, yeah. is you have the ability to live in other parts of the world. And, you know, that can be a very rewarding process.
1: I, exactly. And, you know, I, I always wanted to, like, get out of, like, small town life um and kind of moved to like a bit of a more a bit more of a city and and so i moved to tampa which isn't a big city by any stretch of the imagination but it's a lot more of a city than than i'm used to and it, it it had all the things that i needed and the beach was close by you know it was always really nice uh you know the, the it's just yeah it's the it's pretty much like the caribbean right uh yeah. <clears throat> so you, you're living like a, a tropical life which is much better and i went to a pretty small uh, private school with tiny classes and lots of like student teacher uh interaction like you could always go knock on the the office of your teacher like first of all you were actually taught by a professor you weren't taught by like a teaching assistant or like a graduate student or anything like that you were actually taught by like a a person with a phd (laughs) and years of teaching experience and you could always go knock on their door like if you're wondering anything and you had like questions that uh, you wanted answered so I had a really, really great time. Like we had a pool on campus, and it was totally nobody would bat an eye if you showed up to class in swimwear. <laughs> so, I that was just really, really nice. Like uh, laid back attitude uh, combined with like high availability of uh, teachers and mentors. It was just really nice. So. And so while I was there, uh, I started getting introduced uh, a lot more to uh, political ideology, as tends to happen when people go to university, right? And uh, the university there was not very, like, I could definitely not, like, pick whether it was, like, left-leaning or right-leaning or whatever. It, it seemed pretty balanced. There were a lot of teachers who were... At, at that time, I would say that I I, I was a bit, like, undecided. Like, I, I tended to flip to either side, depending on, you know, sort of, like, the narrow goals that I, I thought I wanted to achieve. Like, with politics, I, I hadn't really thought about, like, uh, you know, like, a moral... Uh, like a moral fundament or anything to to put things on like I I didn't have like a bottom up way of determining like where I stood politically I just looked at goals kind of narrowly and clinged on to whatever political solution that seemed seemed you know with a TM behind it uh like it would achieve that Um, You know, without much like real analysis of would it actually achieve that, you know, it just sounds like it would achieve that right. And so, but as I, as I got like more and more involved in that you know there were, um, I, I happened to hit, uh, I happened to hit the, the first, um, like the first election where, uh, where Obama was elected. Um, and and kind of got to taste the sort of,, it, you know, if, if you think about it, that was that was quite of like a uh, like a watershed moment in, in US politics. And I, I got to actually experience like a, a U.S election cycle uh, from from the ground instead of through, you know, the Norwegian news, which, I've come to understand in hindsight are like hopelessly terrible <laughs> at, <laughs> at describing all these things, and they think they're not. They they think they're like really good, mm. uh, but but they're not. They have no idea. Well, they have um, an agenda that
0: they must keep to, and therefore they probably, don't tell perhaps as you
1: like. Yeah, probably. And like all their experts are are these like mm. Norwegian professors who are like a professor of like american studies at the university of oslo and i'm like okay but you know have you have you, ever lived in the US? <laughs> you know like do you know any americans <laughs> and uh because it's clear that you don't but so uh but so i i, I got i got that that process kind of uh you know close on, on on the body if you will mm-hmm. and, uh, i started getting introduced to uh a lot more of like the political candidates um, and, and the spectrum of candidates in the US. And I got more familiar with, with the, 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 the sort of, um, well, the, the, the specter of, uh, of difference in opinion there, which I found at first to be like crazily to the right in terms of what I was used to, because Norway is very left shifted. You know, even our even our most conservative parties are probably, well, the Democrats in the U.S. have gotten, you know, a lot more leftist over the last like eight or so years. But by the time when I was there, you know, which is now like 12, 15 years ago, uh, the Democrats were probably as far right as the furthest far right party in Norway. Mm-hmm. And, and then the Republicans were like way to the right of that again. And that was like a bit shocking to me. And then what happened was that I got introduced to libertarianism and Ron Paul in particular. And Ron Paul is like definitely the guy who like red pilled me. Um, he, he just had a way of explaining things, explaining e- even like economical uh, concepts in a way that just made common sense. And I was like, how come this guy's making sense? And like all these other people are using all this like intricate like language and, you know, weird math that to me as like a a student of like math and physics, I'm like, and and chemistry, like they they use a lot of like terms like equilibrium uh, that are completely inappropriate and out of place and don't have anything to do realistically with like what they're trying to like hang it on if you will mm-hmm. and and i'm like how come this guy's making so much sense whereas these guys who are seemingly trying so hard to like science science fi if you will their like version of, of economics just make absolutely no sense when they're talking uh and their concepts like don't stand up to scrutiny and so he, and and he, he's, he's definitely the guy who, uh, who got me introduced to like the problems of central banking, because he, he has talked for decades, literally, about the problem of the Fed, uh, the problem of inflation, how manipulation of interest rates is actually what uh, creates the credit cycle. And lo and behold, right after uh, or during the late election cycle, we get the financial crisis right the great financial crisis and I was there for it and I got to observe it like close hand and it's 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 a crazy thing to see when you know from like one half of the year to another every single house in all the neighborhoods that I would drive past to get to school are all for sale like what the hell like how come they're all for sale at the same time and you know this whole recession it it just got me like thinking so much I was like how come we're producing less value now than we did you know a year ago all our capital is still in place it's not like any of our factories burned down or like any of our ships sunk or you know our planes fell out of the air or or whatnot you know we still have all the same productive capacity like we haven't run out of raw materials people are unemployed now why right like why were they employed like a year ago but not now you know what is the deal here and from from there on it kind of snowballed into like uh like a a, a deep interest in you know what the hell is is going on you know and and all the explanations you kept getting fed right it's just like oh, you know, interest rates are too high. You know, we got to just lower interest rates and stimulate the economy. Um, Whatever that means. Yeah, and and meanwhile, I'm like, but hang on a minute. Like, wasn't the whole reason that this all went to shit was that you had pushed the interest rates so low that a lot of people had taken out loans that they couldn't afford if the interest rates, like, normalized? And what does normalized even mean? Like, don't you set the interest rate? Like how come, like, what is normal, then you just decide, like, there's no market that sets this price. And how come there's not a market that sets this price? How come the market gets to set every price except the price of money? Like, it just made no sense to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so all of this was like, kind of percolating in the back of my head, but it wasn't like a main focus. Like, you know, I I was still studying, uh, you know, science. And so, I finished, uh, I finished in Tampa, got a, a degree in, in biochemistry, uh, with, with a minor in philosophy and, uh, in psychology. And then after that, I, uh, I actually moved back home for like six months, uh, worked in an elementary school, uh, just teaching kids, which was actually really awesome. Um, cause they're a lot of fun. And if you, you know, if, if you're just, Enthusiastic and knowledgeable, and treat them not as like little twerps that don't understand anything. They're actually really, really receptive to everything you say and they suck up information like you wouldn't even believe is possible. But obviously, like, I wasn't going to stay at home. I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. And what I ended up doing was um, applying for a basically at this point, my overarching goal, like academically or like career wise or whatnot, like I didn't have like a hard career goal by any stretch of the imagination, but I wanted to get to the bottom of what consciousness was. Um, that was like the goal. I was like, I need to know, like, what is it? Like, what, what are we? Um, and so I'd always been interested in everything having to do with the brain. Uh, so with like a a biochemistry like background I figured okay well why don't I go and study how the brain works like specifically or or how like the mechanical parts of the body comes together to like create the phenomenon that you know define us as like living creatures consciousness being one of them and so uh, I got into this uh, master's program in Barcelona, at the University of Barcelona, uh, studying biophysics because I, I had read, you know, the the sort of things that were to be covered, and um, you know, a, a electrochemistry was like a big part of it. And I figured naively uh, that surely consciousness is just another uh, mechanistic phenomenon that is caused that caused by uh, Uh, by whatever mechanics the brain exhibits Uh, and if i could just study those mechanics uh, at a low enough and intricate level i'll figure out what consciousness is right seemed reasonable to me um obviously it's not reasonable at all there's nothing like an audacious goal hey Uh, you know i I thought it was a good goal (laughs) brilliant i love it it's um
0: I mean, frankly, it's what all these conversations are about. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying learning about how people kind of make decisions in life. Um,
1: And well, you shouldn't go by my example. And no, no, not I'm not (laughs) not,
0: not suggesting that at all. It just it's, um, it's interesting how you piece together the pieces. Um, And you know, I wouldn't. I'd be lying if I said I went through university and didn't start asking some questions. But it's not necessarily the predominant kind of um goal at the time like i need to get a job I need to think about a career and therefore mm. you're not necessarily um scratching that itch per se um, mm. but i love the 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 idea of like driving past all those houses and seeing they're all for sale and going hang on what the fuck happened here and so I, i'll be very similar age to yourself i'm 33 at the moment the, mm. the global financial crisis 0809 i was still a student i remember obama getting voted in it was a huge moment um, i was probably what 19 years old at the time or something and um yeah it was just there were just big things going on in the world at the time you know there was stuff changing in the uk as well um so yeah okay so we're looking into consciousness and you're doing a master's in barcelona which is an awesome city i love visiting there um where did that where did that take you next
1: yeah so i moved to barcelona lived in the gothic city which is you know the coolest part of the coolest city in the world um and uh just really had a good time um and there i obviously the 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 program itself had a, a lot of stuff that we covered we covered basically like molecular machinery and like the physics of like the topography of cells uh as determined by like the actual shape of um of the the molecules that that make up the membranes, uh, we studied how cells move, uh, we, and, and the motors that that propel them uh, inside of, uh, of, the, uh, of of the of the structures uh, that, that they have. Uh, but then my my project itself was actually um, doing some experiments on the transmission velocity of the electrical signals of uh, n- nerve cells. So basically I, I worked with this professor who, who was very interested in uh, propagation speeds of, uh, of neurons and how to measure them and to see whether the measurement could actually be explained by Mathematical models that like models the 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 ion channels on the on the surface of of the synapses um, in in neurons. So basically, what we did was that we we built these like little cell networks in petri dishes, and so we uh, we ordered like euthanized pregnant rats from you know some other department that dealt with that. Then we. dissected the the rat and like got all the little babies out of like the the birth canal of the of the mother and then we cut them out of their sacks uh cut their like uh, undeveloped craniums open and took out the um hippocampal uh, neurons from like the the side lobes of their like developing brains this was like it felt kind of crazy to like be thrown into this i'd done some cell culture before in my undergrad but like this felt like super like interesting and real and part of what part of what i did was that i developed this way where we used 3d printing to print these uh microscopic uh shapes if you will that we would uh that we would kind of direct the neurons to live in. So one, one of the shapes that was particularly interesting was this like weird squarish C starting here, moving. Uh, I, I guess people won't be able to see this, but you know, picture like a, a C uh, with, with very square uh, shapes instead of round, and it's very elongated. And if you hold a small circle in this case, like the microscopic lens, over the start point of the C, the end point of the C, and you would also then be able to see the middle point of the C in as small of a circle as possible. And then um, we grew the cells in this sort of shape. Uh, then we uh, we we inject. We, we basically got the cells to. Uh, to take up this uh, fluorescent molecule that lit up every time there was an, an action potential in the cell. That is, every time the neuron fires and sends an electrical signal, it also caused this fluorescent molecule to emit light. Wow. And then, yeah, then we looked at this in a microscope and then we timed the difference between when it lit up from this one part of the beginning of the C, then to the middle, then to the end. And from those three measurement points, we could measure the propagation speed mm-hmm. through, through this like shape that we made. <clears throat> and then we gave them drugs. Um, so then we uh, we put in neurotoxins, uh, like really, really dangerous neurotoxins <laughs> wow. uh, in, into the Petri dish in, in very carefully calibrated doses. And those neurotoxins would target specific um, Uh, specific ion channels on this on the synapses of these molecules and then uh, from the amount of blockage each channel would get from these neurotoxins we could then test uh, whether or not the reduction in propagation speed actually conformed to the mathematical model that we used I think our model was called the Hodgkin's Huxley model of um of um uh, action potentials and and it actually fit so wow. that's a, actually a very long way uh, to say that this is how i got introduced to networks mm-hmm. and this was probably w- one of the one of the fir- well it, it's it's one of those random things that i studied that i have no idea would become relevant to bitcoin uh but it was actually quite relevant to bitcoin and you know, previously I'd studied chemistry and and, and, and uh a lot of the concepts that, that happened there around thermodynamics, um, which was another random thing that I that I ended up studying in quite some detail that is very important to Bitcoin, but obviously I had no idea at the time. Um, so then after I I finished this, uh, this project in Barcelona, I, you know, having never really like, for some reason, I, you know, going through my education, like, I never thought that I would have like an issue finding a job or like making money or whatnot. Because like in Norway, that's not normally an issue. If you want to work, you can work because there are so many people who don't want to work. And they just like leech on the state that there's like, never really like a lack of jobs for people who want to work. So it it never really crossed my mind that I should like think about this <laughs> and make sure that I had like marketable skills and all that. Uh, but so oh, but that's an interesting
0: um trait to growing up in Norway. I'm sure there'll be many people similar so to yourself. that just you weren't fussed about that 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 first job per se. Um, what I'm oh, interested but- Chris, I, I feel like you're heading this way, Crystal, but um Explain to me why thermodynamics and the story you just mentioned about being a student in Barcelona, at some point, Bitcoin became part of the, the kind of decade after that, I guess. Um, right. How does that all fit into play? Because what, what really fascinates me is that every Bitcoin that you meet, you can ask them the same 10 questions and you get 10 mm. different answers. Ten. And everyone's lens on what this thing is, is, is slightly different slash completely unique. So please teach me about how these seemingly random experiences blended together to, to give you such confidence in what's a, a very nascent technology.
1: Sure. I mean, I, and, you know, th- this didn't be like, I didn't realize this until like way later, right? But, <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, aha. <yeah>. Uh-huh. <laughs> Five years later exactly. or 10 years or, later or whatever. Yeah.
1: Or, or, you know, as I, as I like studied the concepts of Bitcoin, I was like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. Like I, I, I know that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, studying networks, I mean, it's not like the networks we studied were any, in any way, like similar to like the topography of Bitcoin, but just getting introduced to like network theory and just the ideas of you know, everyone knows what the word network means, I guess, or they've heard the word network, but it doesn't the semantic quality of their understanding of that word might vary quite widely and if you haven't ever you know looked into what that can mean in a in a stricter form or like a more um, structured form then as with a lot of words it's probably a bit vacuous to you like you maybe like picture like a, a net or like a map or something you know uh and and you don't actually think about it like in a in a uh in an abstract way that can like really help you understand like why it's helpful or or valuable or, or interesting uh, and so that that was interesting um, in terms of thermodynamics i mean that's like literally the key of bitcoin is that we are using externally sourced entropy to thermodynamically prove the passage of time in a way that is very easily verifiable for anyone. And using that technique, we can actually agree on the time ordering of events, even though we don't have synchronized clocks. And that's like mind blowing, you know, like proof of work is a decentralized cooperative clock that we all work on together and we substitute the use of synchronized time networks with the proving the the passage of time through proving the expenditure of work and if you uh, if you've studied physics you know that work is uh, force times time so it's a it's a It's a time expenditure of a certain amount of force. And so if work has been expended, by definition, time must have passed. So if you have one event, uh, a computer science event, like a block, uh, and you have another one that has work provably expended in it and has a cryptographic fingerprint of the other block you can know for a fact that the second one was produced after the first one and that's kind of all you need to know to uh to be certain that the time ordering of something is unambiguous Like you don't, there's no way you can think that block one came after block two because block two has a cryptographic fingerprint of block one. And it also has a proof that work was expended since block one was in existence because the work contains that fingerprint. Like it's it's a mind blowing thing. Uh, And so Bitcoin is like fundamentally thermodynamically oriented you know we are we are using an external source of information to agree on the ordering of events and this is a thermodynamic process right like you are you know if if you know that a number could only exist via the serial repetitive guessing then you know that the person who has this number must have statistically at least as you average it out over many blocks they must have uh, expended work in finding that number and if work has been expended time must have passed or go this block comes after the previous one and just by adding like a simple rule which is the the correct blockchain is the one that has the most accumulated work uh, in all its blocks you have like an amazingly brilliant super simple completely objective uh way of arriving at uh decentralized consensus of time ordering it's it's insane it's absolutely insane and so you know this like really like having uh having studied thermodynamics like it, it just and physics just helped me intuitively like understand this although i'll i'll just point out that it took me five years of studying bitcoin before i got that well oh. that the uh which in itself real- is proof of work huh which in itself
0: is proof of work
1: yeah yeah like the uh, understanding the proof of work is a decentralized clock didn't i didn't get that until 2018
0: yeah until uh, you've done the work you're like okay now i right. get
1: it um, Oh, dude, I, I mean, I, I, I remember where I was, you know, when I got it, like, I remember that. <laughs> well, go because- on, talk, talk to me about that
0: feeling. So for years you've been studying and suddenly you just had like a bit of a, ah, oh, fuck, that makes sense. Well, How did that I,
1: feel? Well, it happens to me all the time in Bitcoin. It's like, you think you know something and then you have this like epiphany moment where you're like, hm, shit, like, I don't know anything. <laughs> I only think that I know something or and and, and it's funny because um, uh, it's like this actually another uh, aha moment that I got randomly from my education was that when I studied chemistry in high school in like the first couple of years of, of chemistry you're introduced to this um, idea called a shell model uh, which is that every atom has these shells uh, and these shells can hold x amount of electrons and uh eight is like the 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 number that they all want to have in their outer shell uh and if they can have eight in their outer shell they're you know super happy and they become like uh noble gases right Uh and so that's like the model you operate under like you draw out like these atoms and you put like x amount of protons in the core and then you you draw out these shells uh, with increasing capacity as you like go out and you're like okay that's how atoms work okay i see how this is mm-hmm, i can work with that and then you get to university level and you know first day the professor goes okay so that whole shell model that you've been working on for the last two years that's wrong that's not that's <laughs> not true yeah it happens in uh,
0: lots of subjects that doesn't it
1: yeah it's like that's not true at all uh that's actually just uh something that is superficially true and can help you understand the concept but it's actually not how it works there are actually these orbitals and these orbitals are like extremely complicated like mathematical geometric you know there some of them are spheres other of them are i can't even like describe them they're like you know kind of rounded tetrahedrons almost that like poke out at you know like 120 degree angles from each other and it gets really complicated there's like circles and um and so i what i've come to kind of appreciate is that you can go through your journey of understanding Bitcoin uh, adopting these types of helpful models that are kind of correct. It's kind of like Newtonian physics are kind of correct. They're correct, you know, in, in our normal perception of time and space and like at the speeds that we operate, which are normally like, low inside of our frame of reference which is the earth like newtonian physics work really well like you can calculate your way like you can model things like you can model you know you can do you know if you're an artillerist or something you can calculate like your your ballistic trajectories and like where something's going to land if you shoot it at this velocity at this angle you know all this it's very useful you can you can do calculations of like how much energy is required to stop a car if it's moving this speed, you know, blah blah blah. It it's it it's helpful, but it's not correct technically. Mm. Um, Einsteinian physics are much more correct,
0: mm.
1: and even those, you can argue whether they are fully correct. And so, <clears throat> going through like the journey of understanding Bitcoin I've found to be kind of like a procession of uh, movement through these types of models that are helpful mental models, but they're not correct necessarily. Like there's actually more to it or there's another thing below it that actually explains it even better if you look at it in that context. And you know the way that I looked at proof of work before was definitely just a case of this, right? It's it it it, it wasn't correct, but it was still helpful, and it it helped me get, you know, to the to the level of understanding where I needed to be before I could like actually grasp it on a deeper level. And I suspect that there's actually more to it that I just don't understand yet, uh, and. know you just have to be kind of humble about that and realize that you know dunning kruger effect is like very much a thing in bitcoin like you will probably get to mount stupid very quickly and then you'll spend years in like the what do they call it's like the valley of i don't know nothing Mm -hmm. and then like you'll actually from there on start like climbing yourself up very steadily towards like actual knowledge um but it's such a wide it's such a wide-ranging subject that you'll probably never get to the bottom of it um, and again like you know we have this protocol and it can probably do a bunch of stuff and it has a bunch of behavior that at the end of the day like we don't fully understand even today e- even like the even like the cryptographer guys who like you know have the probably the highest potential to like fully grasp everything about it. Even they don't necessarily like grasp all of the effects that Bitcoin has on, you know, society and, and crazy things like our energy grids. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no way Satoshi like uh, foresaw all of this, like there's no way he foresaw like the integration of Bitcoin into our energy grids and how it can help us, uh, you know, create a much more efficient way of, uh, of, uh, adding, you know, lots of renewables into, into our grids without, uh, without making them so expensive that they become unpopular, you know, th- there's just always more to it. And this, this was just a perfect example of that. It's like, you, you think, you know, something at that point, I, I had started working for coinshares. I, you know, I was working as head of research and, you know you get that moment and you're just like oh my god like what else don't i know like do i need to be careful like should i you're even do- of research right it's like you if anyone knows you know don't you <laughs> right right and and you know fortunately fortunately having the sort of privilege to be in a role like this where you can you can spend literally all your days doing what you would do anyway which is like just read about this it does allow you to pretty much in in every case to be ahead of your clients at least right Mm -hmm. so I always feel way behind you know the the people that have been in this the longest and like the core devs who like you know think about this in in ways that I can't you know from like a like a a deep understanding of cryptography and computer science, which is where, like, I am, you know, least uh, apt, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, like, I always manage to feel ahead of clients who, you know, have a lot of other stuff to think about, too. Like, they don't have the opportunity to sit and spend, like, who can spend 10,000 hours on Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. It's It's not a ton of people who can do that so and our clients can not do that so that's i guess
0: that's where the asset management play comes in though in that there are asset (laughs) out there that are looking for certain types of assets for different risk profiles for different customers that they have and it's like well what's this bitcoin thing how do i even buy it who knows about who can who can give me a a glossy research report that I can actually send to my customer and say, look, these guys look like they know what they're talking about. My mate's already invested with them. They think they know what they're talking about. I reckon it's a good bet, you know, portfolio allocation of 1% bang, in we go, or whatever the conversation might be. So, and this is a common theme. I talk about this a lot. The leveraging other people's research in order to make good investments is totally and utterly allowed. If anything, it's good. So unlike when you're in school and you're told you can't copy someone's work because then you're in trouble, actually, if you have someone that you trust and then respect and you know they've done the work, then putting your money alongside theirs, not a bad bet.
1: Oh, great artists steal, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, or everyone's influence comes from somewhere. And going back to your point about Satoshi and never envisaging the impact it might have on our energy grid, I, I agree. There's just, there's no way... 12, 13 years ago, conceptually, that would have been part of the, the, the discussion, whoever no, he, I, and, or they were. Um, and it's not what a is of... intriguing, though. It's like, you know, when someone invented the wheel, you know, they didn't invent cars straight away, but like that right. was an important technology that's part of a car. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's like humans are just the ingenuity levels are just extraordinary. Like the ability mm-hmm. to sit down and learn stuff, like basically. Everything you've told me today is, you know, stuff I don't really understand. I'll admit that. But you've gone away and learnt about it. The fact is, you started at zero. You know, the day we're born, we don't know anything, and then here we are, however many years later, and we understand these different things that we've spent the time to go and learn about. So, what Bitcoin becomes, who knows? And how it part of the, how it's, how is it part of the kind of tech stack that we use? And what will it be part of in the future that wouldn't have been possible without it? It's impossible to predict. But it's kind of like you know, designers take inspiration from all sorts of places and and the combination of that work is what ends up being the end product, I guess.
1: Yeah. And, and so when, when I was, uh, when I was a teenager, my, my uncle, uh, who's, who's been like a great inspiration in my life and like, a uh, an enabler of all my kind of crazy ideas of like what I wanted to do. Uh, like education-wise and all that, like he, he's helped me like realize a lot of these uh, plan, you know, sort of loose plans that I had and, and 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 loose goals for for knowledge. When I was a teenager, he sent me this anecdote about Steve Jobs when he was uh, in, in college age and how he, you know, he. He went to college uh, with, with his, like, stepdad's money, effectively. And, you know, he while he was at college, he, like, kind of went with what interested him. So he studied random stuff like, you know, computer science and calligraphy and just things that, you know, you, you just would never think that you would be able to use in, in combination, right? And then he, after a while was like, I don't know that I'm getting like a lot out of this. So he like dropped out and then he ended up, you know, starting up Apple. And one of the things that he was able to do in building uh, early operating systems that nobody else did was that he could add a ton of different fonts because mm-hmm. he had studied calligraphy randomly. Yeah, I've read
0: this. I've read his. I've read his autobiography. It's a fascinating story. I and mean, he was very, very particular about it. He'd, he'd sit down and he'd be super, super strict on exactly what fonts were allowed and what shouldn't be used, etc. Yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary point being it was a, a skill set that an entrepreneur had that was unusual and, and ended up being a real point of difference on their journey to success.
1: Absolutely. And you know, without, without him taking that random calligraphy class, like Apple might, might have never become the preferred sort of publishing operating system. the creative platform. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and these types of random like, I, I kind of feel like, so obviously, like, you know, I'm I'm just like a regular guy and, you know, he has like changed the world. But I kind of feel like a lot of those like same things have ended up like happening to me. Like, I've just studied a bunch of things that I thought was like very interesting. And because of that, you, when you study something that you think is like actually interesting, you tend to retain them because you have an intrinsic motivation for getting that knowledge and and holding on to it and you know you you do things with it within your own mental modeling of like how you perceive the world right Mm -hmm. and like a lot of these things have just like randomly happened to me like you know I I studied like I said you know thermodynamics networks after I uh, left uh, my master's program uh, having graduated out of uh, University of Barcelona I started working in um, in in finance in London, just dealing with a lot of storytelling around like central banking. I uh-huh. um, hadn't even heard of Bitcoin. Then I did hear about Bitcoin. You know, started getting inter- getting interested in it, but then took a job um, in something completely unrelated. I started working in energy shipping, and so through energy shipping. Uh, I sat on the LNG desk, which is liquid natural gas Mm -hmm. are really familiar with electricity grids and the world's energy systems, right? Like all the, uh, the, the the networks that we use globally Mm -hmm. to get energy, uh, electricity grids, gas pipelines, uh, oil trade routes, oil pipelines, like all of this stuff I got introduced to. And that also like in, in such a crazy roundabout way enabled me to, to get like, uh, um, just like, um, I don't know, like a natural understanding, like, I guess, kind of early about the potential of proof of work and what it could do to our energy grids. And, you know, we started writing back in 2018, um, about how, uh, Bitcoin and proof of work could end up incentivizing uh, the build outs of renewables and how, you know, stranded renewables were the perfect kind of energy source for proof of work and and how uh, Bitcoin miners could end up raising the profitability of uh, of these energy assets that otherwise didn't really have uh, much clientele. And that in the end, you know, if these assets became more profitable um, and they made money for their owners, their owners would then later have the ability to finance proper interconnection with these assets. Mm-hmm. And they would, there. you know, they would from there on become more sort of productive parts of our overall energy systems and, and become more helpful for like, you know, retail and 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 business markets whereas right now they're kind of just sitting out in the middle of nowhere and no one can really access them because there's no grid connection that goes there and no one's going to finance that because that doesn't make any sense and there's no money in the asset because it's not really like profitable you know all of these things kind of just have come together in a very random way through like random experiences like throughout my life mm. so i kind of feel very um fortunate that it's awesome
0: i feel very similar in some ways um i'm actually a ship broker so i work in the dry bulk oh, nice. uh, space and oh, that's awesome um i did five years quit went and worked in startups for five years didn't work out back working in the ship space and um and so i'm very similar in that sense of you know when you sit down and you understand international shipping The amount of stuff that we dig, we move, and we burn is crazy. Like, beyond, like, mind-blowing volumes of stuff, whether it's, you know, liquefied natural gas, crude oil, coal, Mm -hmm. iron ore, it's just crazy. Um, Point being is that the the energy network is fascinating, and understanding, you know, so I'm familiar with the coal market and looking at electricity power generation. And coal is still the predominant source of electricity globally, in fact. And we ship 1.2 billion tons a year on the oceans, fact. And you just think, oh, okay, cool. Renewables do what? Like a very tiny fraction of that. And you hear the, the, the future capex of BP, 15 billion, of which 50 million or 50 billion or something. What was it? Oh, I'm going to absolutely butcher these stats. But basically the, the, the big energy companies, they're putting a fraction of the amount of capex in the future into renewables and alternative assets versus the traditional systems. Um, but what's particularly mind blowing though, is that you might own a coal mine, but how do you get it to sell to anyone? Well, you've got to build a railway, railway line, you've got to have a port, mm-hmm. and you've got to then ship it to most likely Asian factories in China, Japan, and Korea. Now, with Bitcoin, you can have a stranded energy asset, whether that's liquid natural gas, whether that's coal, frankly, whether that's hydro, whether that's any energy source, and you can monetize it without having that physical route to market that was required before. And this is an absolute game changer in terms of how energy is used and consumed and, and um, commercialized. Uh, I love some of the the future predictions that I've read about people making in the Bitcoin space of, you know, new citadels in different parts of the world where previously you wouldn't have gone because there was no way of monetizing the local energy assets, and now you can. And this is, you know, Satoshi didn't think about that. Like no, no way. way, right? No way. Just Ramifications of what this technology means, and um, I completely echo your sentiment of feeling very fortunate to have had a number of random, seemingly random experiences that you know I have on my Twitter. All leads, all roads lead to Bitcoin. Which somehow, like, when you kind of realize this, you're like oh, whoa, what is this thing? Um, and, and-, and here I am, you know, on a podcast talking to you about it.
1: It's fascinating. Right. And and I actually find that this is pretty common in a lot of Bitcoiners because, you know, however you want to, however you want to look at it, like we're still very early stage. Um, and, and I, I guess we're, you know, we're, we're kind of, late early stage when it comes to the amount of people who maybe have some exposure. Cause like there are some stats that saying, you know, like 15 or 20% of or whatever of Americans have like exposure, all of that. Okay. That's one thing. It's probably still like less than 1% who has like put a hundred hours, let alone a thousand hours into trying to figure out like, what is this? I mean, it's one thing to like YOLO into Bitcoin on your Robinhood, but it's a whole different thing to like sit down and actually try to figure out what this is. Mm -hmm. And so I I still find that we're very early stage in terms of knowledge about this, right? Like people becoming like Bitcoiners. Mm. uh for lack of a better term uh as like someone who could at least give like a coherent explanation of what this like technology is and how the network is formed then like how the protocol dictates it and how the currency unit emerges from it and how it's transferred you know all these things um, That becomes a clock
0: as you touched on briefly earlier i mean it's yes it's,
1: it's, nobody it's, knows that like that yeah. that is you know we nobody knows that like you know there's there's like a there's like a small handful of of people in the world who like fully grasps that Uh, you'll you'll never see it mentioned in any like official document like now these days you know you have like you have the the Congress uh, in the US, you have the European Parliament, you have all of these like official bodies who, you know, you have the fucking IMF and the BIS and the World Bank and all of these guys, you know, the the St. Louis Fed. There's been a ton of very high bureaucratic level uh, work done on, you know, trying to figure out like what this is. And they they will all try to like explain what proof of work is and zero times have I ever seen anyone correctly actually identify proof of work as a time ordering mechanism. Mm -hmm. They all think it's about transaction validation, Mm -hmm. which is just completely incorrect. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's such an entrenched misconception uh, that people over and over and over again, just like fall into this like wrong mental model of how to view this. And so, you know, cause you know, let me let me plug like where I actually, you know, realized this is from a random blog post uh, from this guy called um, Gregory Trebetskoy, who I have no idea who this guy is. <laughs> The only thing I know about him is that he put out this random blog post in 2018. And I think Nick Carter sent it to me. And he was like, dude, you need to read this. And I read it and, you know, just had my mind completely blown by it. And now, you know, and, and, and what's, here's what's fascinating. In the white paper, Satoshi never uses the word blockchain, but what he does say a couple of times is time chain. And it's, it, it's almost crazy that this has like slipped so many people's understanding of like what it is that Proof-of-Work actually does at the end of the day. Uh-huh. Uh, when it's kind of like right there, right? It's like the blockchain is a distributed timestamping server that contains transaction information. And because we know the ordering of the blocks the transactions that are in the blocks can then be used to construct the ownership database, the UTXO set. Right. And like, it, it's, it's, it's kind of wild that we're what like 13 years in almost, we're 12 and a half years in and we're still, we're, we're still at this level of like deep confusion, and misunderstanding about one of the most fundamental aspects about this it, it un, unless unless you're of the more cynical and conspiratorially oriented mindset where you actually think that these people do understand but don't want to acknowledge that that's the fact because it doesn't help them achieve their uh narrow political goals um so you know no, I, i'm
0: personally um i'm sorry to jump in but that point's important. Um, I, th- I think it's just naivety more often than not. I people just haven't done the work and they don't understand it. Like how, how you're describing uh, the, the Bitcoin um, tech stack right now. like I've heard it described like that, but of the probably twenty percent of the research I've read will maybe talk about it like that, but eighty percent will 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 skim over this fact and you know talk about something else, basically. And that's mm-hmm. in hundreds of hours of, of researching so far. Um, so uh, to me, it's, it's it's a good reminder as to what it is, what this actually is. But equally, to my mind, it's most people are just naive. They just haven't worked it out yet.
1: Um, I agree. And, and I find that you know your explanations of Bitcoin kind of go through a phase where, in the beginning, they can be quite simple, mm-hmm. um, but they're just wrong. Mm-hmm. And then you move into a phase where you've struggled to explain it in a way that isn't extremely complicated, Uh, (laughs) but it's, it's a lot more correct. And then you sort of enter like a more zen phase where you're just like, well, actually I can explain this quite simply in a way that, you know, if you're interested, even like, you know, your grandma can understand, Mm -hmm. you know. So, Christopher,
0: what I love about someone like yourself is um, uh, you described at the start, a STEM student. So the the math, the science, the technology, the engineering, this is not a skill set that was natural to myself. I was more of a creative student Um, and luckily became interested in business and went and had a business career. But the the fact is, it's a hole in my due diligence skill set of a new thing. And to listen to yourself with a, a brilliant scientific background, come look at Bitcoin, analyze it. think this is actually incredibly innovative and very exciting. I'm going to jump in and get involved and make a, make a life out of it. It's, it's an excellent um, signal for me to also utilize as well. And I think there'll be a lot of people out there that obviously don't have the scientific skill set that you do that will also find these kind of conversations very valuable. Because they go, ah, oh, okay, well, if he thinks that, then I think it's fair enough for me to kind of jump in alongside. Um, listen, we're coming up to an hour and a half of chatting. So I, I want to I try and um, wrap it up uh, now because I'm aware of time. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, what does the future have in store is a final question. And um, and after that, where can we get in touch? What, for me? Yeah. Or- yeah. So, so uh, what's the future got in store? Just like, you know, how do you see things playing out the next few months slash years um you mentioned you've got more focused on bitcoin research only um and then we'll just wrap it up with you know how people can get in touch with you um if needs be
1: yeah i mean i have no idea how my life's going to turn out and i never did and now at least i like uh i i've just you know come to terms with that so i don't i don't even pretend to think that i know what's going to happen to myself um so with that in mind like do i have any idea what's gonna happen to bitcoin probably not um i i feel like we're, we're in an interesting place now we're like almost in this like weird pseudo bear market but it doesn't feel like a bear market because you know I, I don't know it uh th- things are kind of like lulling a little bit but I think as always, there's like a ton of really interesting stuff that's happening in the background. I think last year kicked in a bunch of doors that were very important. Um, The fact that we had sovereign countries like literally go out and adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, I think forced this subject as a matter of debate in a lot of other places. And I think those debates are happening right now. Mm um we had some very large institutional players come in last year and take big positions i think and obviously we observe this as you know we, our institutional clients is like our bread and butter uh at coinshares and we we know that these discussions are now happening um at a much more advanced level than before uh so i think I think what's happening right now is there's a ton of stuff happening in the background where uh, certain buckets of investment money are going through the steps that they need to go through in order to be able to take positions in new asset classes uh, at all, because a lot of them are very tight mandates and they might not be out allow like they, they might not have the paperwork in order internally to be able to like do anything and get involved
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, i think a lot of that is now happening in the background what you know we're observing more and more advanced discussions on a part of like large asset managers uh you know inching closer to just realizing that this is another type of asset that they just need to have exposure to and you know the conversation has moved so far away from, is this going to exist in six months, 18 months, you know, three years, everybody understands that it's got staying power now and it's not going anywhere. Um, All of those things have kind of now caused a lot of big decision makers to retreat uh, and make sure that they have everything in order internally before they, you know, Go out and do something. I think a lot of people are waiting on the fence for other people in the space. A mm. lot of these like large uh, investment managers don't like getting, you know, quote unquote, balls deep into something unless their uh, colleagues are as well because yeah. they have career risk.
0: Mm.
1: Now it's going to come to a point where the career risk is going to flip the entire the entirely opposite way where not being in bitcoin it's going to risk your career if everybody else is and you're left behind right mm. and i think that kind of singularity moment is like creeping closer um in bitcoin itself i think you know it's it's kind of like bear markets are nice because it's like build mode mm. um where technology is just developed uh new stuff is added to the tech stack new capabilities are being announced Tarot coming out on lightning was a big thing. Mm. Uh, looks like we're gonna have a bit of like uh an internal battle over this new CTV proposal. Um, I think that's very healthy. Uh this is kind of like the we need little like civil war skirmishes from time to time to get everybody's like uh blood flowing again and get everyone switched on and and notice what's going on. It's it's good that we have these debates about. know how like what is the governance of bitcoin like how do we determine what code makes it into core um is it cool for people to release their own clients like jeremy rubin now has done um if not why not like this is permissionless like he can do whatever he wants you know it's it it, it's it's good It, it it feels it feels nice it feels less like you know Whenever the, the crazy bull markets are happening, there's always so much going on that you know it, it it can be hard to to keep up or just feel that you're on top of what's going on. Whereas these periods are are nice for like people who you know who study this like intently. We can like build things, we can we can concentrate on like fundamentals, research, we can like develop our models, we can we can keep doing kind of the things that we're doing we're not constantly like thrown between like oh my god what's going on is the price going up is the price going down uh like we can kind of concentrate on what i think is what our investors really should be paying attention to which isn't so much is now a good time to buy obviously they are going to be interested in that because that's their incentive structure but if they had a little lower time preference it's almost becoming a little cliche at this point but if their time preference was a little lower i think they would realize that what's what's more important right now isn't to go should we buy now or should we buy later it's it's just like figure out what it is that this is like get get a full grasp or Mm -hmm. as full of a grasp as you can about buy it and why yeah, like, just start with what is this? Like, how does it work? And once you figure out, like, how it works, you can start figuring out, okay, now that I know how this works, what do I think the implications of this is going to be on the real world? Once you have those implications, you can then fit that into your macro understanding that you already have, if, if you're, you know, these people. And once you fit that into your overall macro understanding whether or not you should or should not buy bitcoin will become completely obvious to you mm-hmm. um because either it's going to be i don't think this is going to have any effect at all this bullshit, and then you shouldn't buy or it's going to be oh actually i think this is going to be a very profound change that's going to like drastically alter a lot about how we do things as a species
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i better have some exposure and then the question is, should I buy now or should I buy later? It's kind of irrelevant. It's like, how many bitcoins can I get my hands on? That's the question, right? <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, that is the okay. only question. Yeah. It's like, should I buy now or should I buy later? I buy some now and then buy some later, like, okay. you know.
0: It's that funny yeah. thing where when, when the price drops, the mainstream media will be like, "Bitcoin's dead." and bitcoiners that really get it are like fucking happy days this is actually a price i never expected to get i'm buying more and right. price action exactly. and value are two very very different things well, well chris listen i don't want to cut you off completely but it's been a wonderful conversation um that i feel like could go on for like another couple of hours frankly there's a few areas yeah. that you touched on that i i didn't even get to ask questions on but the the, the picture you paint is very exciting and you know, if I could summarize the, the institutional investors out there that currently have very little exposure to Bitcoin, that are currently going through the process of learning out why they want to buy it. I'm sure that someone like yourself is critical in that process for them. So good work, keep it up, please bring them on board. And, you know, we're really not a long way away from the next harboring process. The, the sell side pressure on this market is going to, you know, become even, even um, tighter, so to speak. And, you know, bigger money's coming in at the same time. So, you know, it's the, the kind of thing that we're all looking at as, as retail investors it's like we can actually front run these people for the first time ever whoa yep. this is an unbelievable opportunity for the average bloke on the street to get involved um, the asymmetry is it's not so on that note so chris uh where can people get hold of you if they want to get in touch please
1: uh you can just find me on twitter probably that's the best way so i'm just uh c underscore bendixson awesome
0: Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really
1: appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Take care. All right, you too.